Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you so much for being here for this fascinating topic today, Jews on the Move, the Geographic Dimension of Jewish Survival in North America. Of course, given mm. the realities um, in Israel, uh, now we will certainly pivot towards, uh, you know, engaging some of the, of uh, that landscape as well. Um, and we're here with Michael Weil, who is um, could have been in Israel today. He partially lives there. I'm sure he'll say, share himself, um, but happens to be in Arizona, where he spends part of his time as well. Michael Weil, an economist by training, born and educated in Great Britain, has spent most of his career working in strategic change organizational development, economic, social, and urban planning. Weil has a, a BSc in economics with technology from City University, London, and an MA in development economics from Sussex University. In 2008, Michael Weil was voted one of the 50 most influential Jews in America by the Forward newspaper. Today, he serves as a member of the International Advisory Board of Limud, the board of Limud North America, and the management board of the Israel Movement for Urbanism. From 2013 to 2016, he served on the Board of Governors of the Jewish Agency as the sole representative of 54 uh, intermediate federations. Currently, Michael Weil lives in Jerusalem in Israel and Scottsdale, Arizona, while traveling frequently in between and works on a select number of strategic assignments. He's also a regular Valley Bait Midrash. So, Michael, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everybody. It's really good to be here. Um, as uh, Rabbi Shmuley said, I'm at the moment in Scottsdale, Arizona, where I'm speaking from. A few days ago, I was in Jerusalem, which is where my uh, permanent home is. And I have to say that my heart, my head and my heart are still in Jerusalem, uh, whilst my body is physically here. And I'm actually going to talk about that later, some of the things that are going on in Israel that are relating to uh, relocation. Uh, but first, let's talk a little bit about Jews on the move. And, you know, I know a little bit about um, migration. I've actually moved house 26 times. That's a lot of moves. I've lived and worked in three continents and nine cities. In London, where I was born, Haifa, Jerusalem, Lud in Israel, Naharia, Aberdeen in Scotland, Passaic in New Jersey, New Orleans, and uh, Scottsdale. And I've actually made Aliyah three times. But, you know, that's another story. I understand the charm of relocating, the bewilderment, the need to connect and acclimatize, and also desire not to connect sometimes and even remain anonymous. So it is kind of strange when you move to a new place, you go through these certain phases and these certain feelings. If we look back, Jews have always been on the move from our nomadic forefather, Abraham, and we spoke about him last week and two weeks ago in Lech Lecha, uh, how he was f asked to move by the divine from where they were in Syria to the land of Canaan, to land that he knew nothing about. And even in this week's parasha, we see uh, uh, we, we see Abraham moving again. Uh, we know about M Moses and the Jewish people wandering 40 years in the desert. We know that the great sage Maimonides, he moved from Spain to Egypt and then to Tiberias, where he finally passed. And then in, in uh, more modern times, we can see the huge dramatic moves of the 19th and 20th century, where Jews moved from Eastern Europe uh, and, 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 and Russia 
to Western Europe and to and to America. But you know, these great moves, all of those things have been forgotten today. Even though we're living through major geographic changes in the Jewish people, as within the countries that we're living in, we're emptying out rural areas, towns, and more cities. And we're actually centering today only around a dozen major metropolitan areas around the world. Think of them, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Haifa, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Boston, Washington, South Florida, Paris, London, Moscow, and Buenos Aires, to name but a few. And there really are, only are a few. It's really interesting as to what has happened to the Jewish people over you know, a fairly short period of time. But kind of strangely, both Jewish communal leaders and modern-day demographers, in North America especially, have ceased looking at the geographical movements. And instead, they're largely focusing on questions that you're all probably familiar with. Who is a Jew? How many Jews there are? We're always counting. Will we survive? And of course, about anti-Semitism, and the latter is especially poignant today. But I want to talk about geography and about Jews who move in North America, where they move, where they're moving to, and why it's that so important. I'm also going to talk about a little bit about relocation in general during wartime and what has happened and what is happening in Israel today and the impact of disasters, not only what we're going through here, but other disasters uh, as well. So Jews have moved internationally a lot. In the mid middle of 19th century, Jews were largely dispersed across many continents, mostly in poor areas, in rural as well as city locations, Eastern Europe, Poland, Hungary, places like that, and Russia, um, as well as places in, you know, in North Africa, Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, and uh, Iraq, and Syrian places like that. They were mostly in poor areas, and often in rural as well as city locations, in shtibles, and in, and in the big cities. Um, and dramatically, over 150 years, Jews moved from those small towns and villages to be concentrated today in just 15 large cities in the developed world, and many of those I just enumerated earlier. It's an amazing movement that, is, that took place. And Jews moved away from historic Jewish areas. Why did they do this? They did this for really for two reasons. They, they moved in order to escape uh, poverty, and there was awful poverty in Eastern Europe, in North Africa, and in Russia, and of course, anti-Semitism, pogroms, Kishinev, um, and uh, things like that. And they, where did they move to? They moved to places, we know they moved to North America, we know they moved to Western Europe, but specifically, they were looking to move to growth areas where there were two things that were available to them. One was religious freedom, and the, and the ability to practice Judaism, Yiddishkeit, as they like, and second, economic opportunity to do better. And interestingly enough, that happens to be uh, the pattern today. So here we are in the 21st century, where there are actually only two major centers of Jews. Almost half are in Israel, almost half are in North America, uh, and the rest are kind of scattered about in places in Europe, South Africa, Australia, and places like that. But there is a certain stability, or so we think, uh, amongst Jews, that we're no longer the wandering Jew. We're either in Israel or North America or in some other places, and we're not moving internationally. 
That is certainly true. We are. We, let's look at what's going on in America. And I'm talking about America, the general population, not the Jewish population. Now, we actually we know an awful lot about migration and relocation in America. We know this because there's a lot of statistics, a lot of sources. Uh, when people move, um, they, 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 they move the um, election registry where they're supposed to vote. Um, they move with vans and all the moving companies actually keep data. Um, the, uh, all the real estate people keep data. Even the IRS keeps data and tabs on you where, where people move. So we actually have a lot of data about we move. We know that until recently, and that's before COVID, around 40% of people uh, are moving each year uh, from place to place, but they're mostly moving close by. Uh, that is, they're moving within a city from one neighborhood, one suburb to another, or to an adjacent city. Only around one and a half percent are actually moving uh, between states. So it's a fair number of people moving, but not that many people are actually moving across the country between states. What happens is that most movers are leaving major urban centers and they're moving to the suburbs, smaller cities, or even to rural areas. Surprisingly, you probably didn't realize that, but it's the bigger cities that are shrinking the most, New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. And the big growth cities are Phoenix, Arizona, Las Vegas, and Jacksonville, um, Florida. Uh, uh, kind of interesting. And uh, what is it? And when people move, not only do they take their house of belongings and their kids, but they also take their money with them. They move their assets as well. So we know a little bit from the banks and from the IRS also data on people about moving. We've talked a little bit about where people move from and where to. They've mostly moved, if you can see on this slide, in the brown areas from the Midwest and the Northeast. And they're moving either the south, southwest or west to Florida, to Texas, to Washington, Oregon, Nevada and Arizona. Um, that's what we know about the places. Now, why do people move? So traditionally, there are four main reasons why people move. And there isn't one that sticks out. All four are kind of important and they differ, obviously, from individual person, individual family. So people move for reasons of work. Uh, we get a new job or we've had to leave a job. There are new opportunities. We move for work. Second reason is we move for family. Um, older people may want to be closer to their uh, married children. Uh, young people are moving away to be closer to some other family members. So family is often a good reason uh, to, be, uh, to move. Or there may be an elder person who's unwell, so a younger person. My family member wants to move closer to them to take care of them. The third reason is weather and lifestyle. Um, some people don't like being in the snow in the Northeast. Some people don't like the heat of the uh, uh, of the South. Uh, some people are happy being in close, dense urban areas. Others don't like it. And so people move for, they want to be in more open areas where there's less density. And the fourth reason is economic reason, the cost of living housing um, and taxes. Uh, Florida uh, the uh, Florida has a little taxes. So that's a good reason kind of to move there. Uh, people move where there's affordable housing, where the cost of living is less. And when you think about those three large cities that I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago, those are cities where the cost of living, where the cost of living is, is, is high.
we've just gone through a major pandemic. And interestingly enough, COVID has significantly changed migration patterns. According to the Pew Survey Company, a survey organization in 2020, around 22% of people moved because of the pandemic. Again, not necessarily across the country. It could be, you know, from the center of the city out to the suburbs. But what we do know is that the, the pandemic, uh, and with the help of technology as well, we've all, we didn't, nobody had heard of Zoom before COVID, and now, you know, it's part of our everyday dictionary. Um, the pandemic, with the help of technology, has acted as a catalyst to migration, has actually not only speeded it up, but also changes its form. So one of the things that's really significant in terms of people moving is when I talked about earlier that people move because of work, because of work and career, that's become less of a factor. People are no longer moving because of work, uh, because we can now work remotely, uh, amongst other things. And in fact, things have changed, whereas previously people were had to move where the work is. So people moved to the Silicon Valley if, if it was high tech. People moved to the New York if they were in finance. Now all that has flipped. And in some cases, the jobs are moving to where the people are. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with South Florida, uh, there is a phenomenon that's called Wall Street South, where a lot of the big banks and finance houses have opened big offices in South Florida and Palm Beach and Miami and places like that uh, in order to accommodate the talent that's moved there, partly because of the pandemic. So careers becoming less of an important thing. Understandably, lifestyle also is becoming important. It's not a lot of fun living in a skyscraper in Manhattan on the 50th floor in the middle of a lockdown when you can't move. It's much more pleasant if you're living in a place that's spread out, where you have a garden, you have a yard, you can walk to places. Uh, there's a lot of freedom around and the weather is, is kind of uh, more, um, more pleasant and more amenable. So lifestyle and living near open spaces with an outdoor climate has become significantly more attractive. Family is also becoming important because we know we, some of us lost loved ones. We know a lot of people that got sick and the sense of family was something that was strengthened during COVID. Another phenomenon that is happening is retiring. People are retiring earlier or partial retiring. So instead of retiring only in your 60s, uh, or 70s, some people are retiring early, or people are just saying, I'm going to work less instead of working five days a week, I'm going to work only one, one or two days a week. In general, if we look at kind of urban life, we see that this has all changed, where people lived someplace, went to school somewhere else, went to work in another place for recreation, for play, for synagogue, for, uh, for, for church. Each time we went to somewhere else, to some extent, these things are all kind of conversion where we're working at home. Some of us are doing schooling at home. Um, the synagogues are no longer confined within, within walls. They're moving out to the people. So all those walls are slowly, dis are slowly disappearing. So if you, just to make the point clear in terms of the geography, if we look at the, uh, the map here of United States, and if you look at the red areas, those are the areas that people are moving out of, out from. You can see on the left, California, they're leaving in the middle around Chicago in the Midwest. And then on the north right side, you can see New York, 
um, and other places in the northeast where they're moving out of, uh, the orange places or yellow places that they're also moving out of, and then where they're moving to mostly, the dark blue. So that's down south, that's especially Florida, Texas, Arizona, and then the other blue areas you can see, especially on the left-hand side towards the uh, 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 towards the towards the northwest. So, what about the Jews? Well, okay. Um, so here's an interesting thing about the Jews. You know the story. You know, in the old days, and I talked about the Shtibel, um people, the uh, rabbis used to move from town to town sometimes to go and give to go to smaller places where people were not so learned and they, there was a story of a great rabbi who would go from town to town and visit synagogues and pray and give a speech and he'd go in his little wagon and his together with it would be his driver he was called the balagala which is yiddish for the person who owns the uh, the wagon and they would go from town to town and each time they'd get there and the rabbi would be treated loyally royally and then um, he would then give a speech. So one day the driver said, you know, Rabbi, you know, I, I like what we're doing, but, you know, let's shake things up a little bit to make it a little bit different. Why don't we, for a change, switch places? I'll dress up as the rabbi and you'll be the driver of the wagon. And the rabbi said, no, no, no. I mean, how's that going to work? I mean, you know, can you give a speech? Can you, you know, do all that? He said, so the driver said, Rabbi, Rabbi, leave it to me. I'll take it, take it, I'll take it over and you'll see it'll be okay. So they changed clothes. They arrive at this uh, uh, new little small village and they're taken to the house of the most wealthy man there, the Gvir, and uh, he puts them into a nice room and they have a nice dinner. And then they go off to shul. Um, and uh, of course, this it's not the rabbi, it's the driver who's being you know, looked after so well. They get to the synagogue and they go to the, they have the services and the uh, driver who's dressed as a rabbi sits in the front next to the local rabbi. And at the end of it, the local rabbi turns to the driver dressed as a rabbi and he says, Rabbi, you know, please, can you give us some words of wisdom? Give us a dvatara, drosha, tell us something that we can learn about that, that's helpful. So the, so the driver dressed as rabbi turns to him and said, you know, uh, I think I'm going to do something a little bit different. Why don't you ask questions? Anybody who's sitting here in the synagogue in the Bet Midrash, you want to ask me a question, anything about the weekly portion or anything from the Talmud or Bahalocha, you ask me questions and, and I'll answer as best as I can. So suddenly puts the question and he says, uh, Rabbi, well, I looked in the Talmud and it says this and it says that, and one rabbi says this, one says that, but there's a contradiction. How do you explain all that? So the driver who's dressed on a rabbi said, that's a difficult question. Really? Even my driver knows the answer. So uh, coming back to our uh, question, what about the Jews? Well, actually, we know very little about Jewish migration in North America because people, there aren't statistics. People don't register when they move, whether they move out of place or when they move in. Um, and the census, as we know, doesn't take into account religion so we don't actually have statistics but we have to extrapolate speculate and hypothesize and gather data from all places to know a little bit better what's going on we do know that jews are more mobile than the, the than the general um than the general population approximately between two and two and a half percent of all the jews every year are moving out of state within you know within uh, cities obviously it's more but out of state 
It's about two to two and a half percent. That's a lot of Jews. That's between somewhere between 140 and 175,000 Jews a year. That is equivalent to the total Jewish population of Cleveland and Baltimore put together. It's, it's a lot of people. And we know a little bit about where they're moving from. The, it's a big wave of Jewish migration that's moving from the Northeast to the South, Southwest, and the West. And where they're moving to, they're moving to places like Austin, Texas, Florida, Phoenix, the Silicon Valley, Portland, and Seattle. And who is moving? Two groups, really, mostly either retirees or pre-retirees or, or young professionals. And they're moving out of the big cities, mostly to medium growth cities or cluster areas, you know, such as uh, South Florida. We can also speculate as to why they're moving. Um, and we know, we understand that, again, for them, like the general population, lifestyle, family, and cost of living are the most significant, are the most significant, most significant factors. We also know uh, something in addition, not only do we have retirees and pre-retirees, but we actually have, you're familiar with the concept of snowbirds or people who spend winter months in sunny, warm areas such as California, Arizona, and Florida. Well, what we've actually seen in recent years is that snowbirds have become all year, all year rounders and they've, they've elected to stay since COVID to stay in those places, especially in places like Phoenix and South Florida, they're actually kind of staying there all, all, all year round. All this movement of people raises a lot of questions. A lot of Jews are moving. There was a, a study that was done by Jewish Federations of North America in 2009, and it did show, and we do have that information, about a third of all Jewish families moved between four and nine years previous. And out of those, about 5% actually moved out of state. So we do know a little bit of something about numbers. What, what, the other thing that that survey showed us, and this is really what is the one of the most critical points that I'd like to make today, is that from a community perspective, most or many relocating Jews in the process of moving do not engage as much in the new community that they're moving to as they did as they were, where they were previous. They're not engaging in the sense that they don't necessarily join a synagogue. They don't necessarily join the JCC. They don't necessarily donate to Federation. They don't necessarily get involved in other causes. Hadassah, National Council of Jewish Women, Israel Bonds, uh, Jewish National Fund, and so on. They did that. They may well have done it in the places that they left in the Northeast and the Midwest but less in the places that we look. Now, we can see that if you look at affiliation rates at different communities, especially in some of those places where people are moving to, you'll see that it's very low. For example, Austin, Phoenix, Las Vegas, Seattle, the affiliation rate is very low. You're lucky if it gets up to 25%, whereas in the traditional cities such as Baltimore, Cleveland, uh, New York, Chicago, you'll see affiliation rates are from... Uh, going 60% and northwards. Why is that? Why are people actually moving uh, and then engaging less? So we can divide the question really into two. If they're an older population, in many cases, they still retain the membership with their synagogues. And within now with, with technology and Zoom, we can, they can even tune into religious services at their old synagogue. 
So there's some of them are still retaining that sort of membership. Um, and they've been active where they were before, but they somehow feel they don't need to be as active again. They don't need to again join a synagogue, again be involved in Federation of the JCC as they had. It's a sort of been there, done that sort of um, um, type of, of feeling. Uh, the other group of people are the young families and, and young professionals. And we know about um, the younger generations that they're not inclined to become members. They don't become members of Hadassah. They don't become donors to federation. They don't become members of synagogues, at least less than the, less than the older population. Um, what they do do is that they engage specifically programmatically to something you know direct but they don't want to become members of anything else and in general for young people doing jewish is is actually a lower priority with people so many people moving what are the critical issues and certainly those first of all affecting declining communities those in the uh, northeast um, and the mist west and maybe some of those in between so a number of things are happening. Some are losing critical mass institutions, especially day schools are having less students attending. Uh, similarly, synagogues are having fewer members. Some are declining, some are becoming stagnant. Also in the process, we see those communities have, have aging populations, but with smaller people, with fewer people around, they actually still have the same amount of re communal real estate. We still have these big JCC campuses. We still have these wonderful synagogue complexes. We have these federation buildings. We have um, other facilities. We have old age homes. We have a lot of Jewish communal real estate, but it, now it's serving less people, and that raises a lot of economic questions. Can we still afford to keep those? There's also less people means less fundraising. And it also means not only less fundraising, but less of a next generation of donors um, and leader, leaders leaders as well. Uh, I'm gonna, what needs to be done? What needs to be done? So let's first talk about the declining communities. Well, um, in those communities that we've talked about in the Northeast and Midwest, first we have to know a little bit about them. We have to define hopefully which particular neighbors, which particular areas are people leaving from. It's best to try and understand who's leaving why, it's kind of difficult because people don't actually put their hands up. They don't call Federation or their synagogue, you know, or their JCC and say, bye, I'm leaving. Um, so it's a difficult to, to do that, but one can try and find ways to reach out that those are likely to move. We should try and adjust the physical and service infrastructure, bearing in mind that we now serving a small population. And that means investing where we can in consolidations, mergers, um, and collaborations of uh, different um, institutions and, and communal buildings. But we also have opportunity, and the opportunity is in the growth communities, those in the South, Southwest, um, and, and, and the Northwest. Those communities need to switch tactics, and they need to think about outreach, change focus, outreach. Now, one of the things that is very interesting when you move, and I can tell you, as I said this personally in my introduction, when you're in the process of moving, you go through certain emotional, psychological processes. You come to a place, you're bewildered, you don't understand it, you don't, you're not aware of what the map is, what the resources are, uh, and yet you need to get settled. 
You need to put your kids in school and nursery. You need to find yourself a local doctor. You want to have hairstylists. You want to perhaps register with some sort of a fitness center. You want to fit into the, find out what's available in terms of arts and culture. And you want to be sociable. You want to make friends. So there is that kind of moment when people move. And it's a fairly short window of a few weeks or a couple of months when people are moving, when they're trying very quickly to acculturize, to climatize, um, and to fit in and get organized. So in that particular moment, there is also a window of opportunity, because that is the moment when people are the most open to listening to advice, to being approached, to getting support, to making new friends. And that is why many communities have a newcomers program and a newcomers program that welcomes new uh, Jewish newcomers to the particular community. Um, I have know this well because, uh, uh, as you may have heard in introduction, I was the executive director of the Jewish Federation in New Orleans just after Katrina, and we created one of the most ambitious and one of the most successful newcomers program uh, in the country. And, and what we did was we made sure that we would approach every newcomer. We found ways of finding out where they were in order to reach out to them and offer them uh, all sorts of incentives, uh, free synagogue memberships, free JCC memberships, uh, reduced uh, tickets for all sorts of Jewish communal events. We would give them buddies. We would offer to take them to synagogues and accompany them there, help them with information about you know, doctors and schools and so on. And by doing that, if you have a, if you engage in newcomers in the first few weeks of the arrival, at that moment when they actually need that sort of assistance, they then become beholden. They then become attached. They become engaged and they become engaged in the Jewish community. And that's what's really important and critical. And it's also an opportunity to also engage them um, in leadership um, within the Jew different Jewish institutions uh, um, in, in those places. I've talked about intervention locally, and now, of course, we should talk about what can be done continentally in terms of the whole country. We shouldn't just leave this challenge um, just to the individual communities, because this is a big thing out of close to 7 million people. If nearly 200,000 people are moving every year, that's a lot of people. And if not all of those are becoming engaged. Some of them are disengaging. That's a huge loss for the Jewish community as a whole. So how do we avoid changing from a more affiliated American Jewish community to somewhat less and less affiliated one? How do we prevent the loss of tens of thousands of Jewish families to active Jewish engagement every year? And at the same time, how do we ensure that our communities are thriving, robust, sustainable, and manageable. So we need to do some things. One of those is we need to think about globally, continentally, redesigning our physical and service communal infrastructure and making it both more compact, uh, but also uh, more flexible. We need to try and identify who is moving. And maybe one of the ways of doing that is creating a national concierge service where Anybody who's moving is encouraged to get in touch with the national organization, such as JFNA or other uh, national Jewish organizations, and they then can be served by them 
to help them both leave the places where they are and move into the places where they moved in. And we also need to think about creating platforms that are less geographically bound. Um, you know, we belong to synagogues that have a certain address. We belong to JCCs that have a certain address. Well, we need to think about affiliation that is uh, less geographically uh, bound. So those are some of the challenges that we have. And this is what's happening with so many people moving across America. And this is, to my mind, one of the crises that American Jewry is going to be facing in the coming years and needs to be dealt with and it needs to be it needs to be addressed. And I hope that you will kind of pass the word to do that. I'm going to pause for a moment because I actually want to talk about relocation as it's taking place moving in Israel today and how it affects the war there. But let's, before I get there, why don't we pause and maybe some of you have some uh, questions or comments that you'd like to uh, like to share. Hi, go ahead. I don't know if you're talking to me. I'm Razel. Hi. Um, I wondered if there's any um, data or, you know, sense of families um, after retirement of living in more than one place, because I know my husband and I are doing that. We moved from the east to the west because of family and because of COVID, uh, which made my husband's work virtual. And um, I know many of our relatives and friends have done the same thing, where they're living between two places. Do you have any information about that? Well, um, I mean, I, you know, I think I'm pleased you raised that. And especially since, you know, I'm one of those people like yourself. Um, I spend a few months of the year um, in uh, here in Arizona, most of the year out in Israel. So we have two addresses. Uh, you know, we go to synagogue here, we go to synagogue there, we're involved in Jewish community there and Jewish community here. And, and that may well be true for yourselves as well. Um, I know this typically, uh, th this is becoming much more of a uh, of a trend. And it's not just uh, not just snowbirds who are doing this. Um, most cases, what we do know is, and you, you can speak obviously from your own experience, uh, but typically the older former home is the one where the stronger Jewish ties are, where one still retains, you know, a membership <laughs> or relationship with the synagogue and a JCC and federation. One still gives money to the federation. I can tell you in the federation world, there's this kind of huge tension uh, between snowbird federations and non-snowbird federations as to where, who, you know, who owns the campaign gift. Uh, and there is, uh, you know, there is some data on that. But I think this is certainly, um, this is certainly a big trend. And it's certainly something that we have to be aware of. And, you know, unfortunately, it kind of messes up the statistics, because we will, we will be double counting when we do uh, demographic surveys of different communities. Uh, sometimes we count the same family twice because they're living, you know, in the, those two places. Just a further comment is that in our case, we we belong to we we move from the east to the west, so we're in two places in California, San Francisco and L.A., and that's because of family and my husband's mobility. But um, one of the problems is that we don't have a set schedule, and so even though we belong to synagogues and go to synagogue and all that, um, <clears throat> it's hard to plug into a community when you don't have a set schedule, and if you want to volunteer to be part of that community, which is one way people who are retirees can do it. Um, it's very difficult to do that because your 
going back and forth and you don't have a particular schedule. Different things dictate when you're going back and forth. So I just wanted to mention that because you talked about the ways that when people are transitioning and we're going through that, <clears throat> that's one of the difficulties that can happen if you really want to be embedded in a community. I, I'm pleased you raised that. I think that's an important thing to bear in mind. Thank you. Michael, did you want to talk a little bit about um, the situation in in Israel now? Okay, yes. So, yeah, I, I would like to because I think it's kind of important. And I think, you know, the story that we're seeing is obviously the big picture. We're seeing the tragedy of the 240 hostages held in Gaza. We're, we're hearing about the 1,400 people who have died so far and some of the horrific things that happened in the course of the massacre of October the 7th. Um, and then we, you know, then there is the big battle that's now taking place all over Gaza with the IDF there. But there are other stories that are going on as well, which also kind of troublesome and important, and I do want to refer to those. You know, we know that there has been a move of Jews in Israel as a result of the war, and it's taken uh, in the form of two. There are there are those that lived in the 22 settlements, mostly kibbutzim, close to the border with Gaza, and many of those have been ravaged and horrible things have happened there. But those places, for the most part, are no longer livable at the time, and the population has moved. We're talking of something like 14,000 people on 22 uh, settlements uh, that had to move, and they're going to be away from their homes probably for a period of anywhere, you know, up to two years. The second group of people that have to move are those who are living in towns and towns and villages near the border, both in the south, but also in the north near Lebanon. And they have been asked to move to get out of harm's way in case there's rockets or fighting or shelling that's coming, whether it's from Lebanon or it's coming from Gaza, to be moved out of harm's way. And we're talking about a huge number of people, 150,000 people that have approximately moved and had to relocate. The vast majority of both groups have been moved to hotels. And sadly enough, you know, the, the tourist industry has obviously totally collapsed as a result of the war. But that has created a, a, a space in which to house all these evacuees. And that's where they're staying in hotels in Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, Eilat, and other places as well, and the hotels in Israel uh, are, 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 are full. Now, regarding the latter group or those who've moved from towns, they will be there for a matter of weeks until the fighting dies down, and to a large extent, they will go back to the cities and village where they came from. But as I said earlier, those who've been uprooted from the 22 uh, villages and settlements close to Gaza won't be going back so soon. Now, uh, I'll talk a little bit about what's happening to them and make an interesting analogy, and that is to Katrina and New Orleans. Um, when Hurricane Katrina happened, there was a similar phenomenon, and the same amount of people, actually, close to 14,000 people were uprooted and had to leave New Orleans and were not able to return to their houses, even to collect belongings for a period of a few months while the city was underwater. Similarly, the uproot, people uprooted from the settlements around Gaza, most of them are not able to go back to even to their visit their kibbutzim and pick up belongings and go there. It's a war zone. Like what's happening in the south, in the case of Katrina, the 14,000 
were looked after in different communities in the South, Houston, um, uh, Jackson, uh, Mississippi, Baton Rouge, other cities around Atlanta, other cities around the South, they took in the Jewish evacuees from Katrina, from New Orleans, and they welcomed them with open arms. They took them in, they provided them with housing, with shelter, with food, and then with clothing um, and uh, schooling and everything else. They were welcomed. And in a similar pattern way, this is what's happened in Israel. Israel has opened up its arms to the evacuees and provided them with, flooded them with toys, with clothes, with food and everything else. Now, what is the process, though, of getting out of that situation of being a, being a refugee and evacuee is actually a three-phase process. The first phase is the immediate one, dealing with immediate needs, such as having a roof over your head, giving food, dealing with people that are injured. Uh, the second phase is an intermediate one. Uh, and by the way, during that time when you're those in the, the initial stage, it's kind of hard because there's no schools available in hotels, um, there's no work available. Uh, so it's kind of hard. The second phase, which is actually now starting in Israel, is thinking about a, a period of a few months up to a couple of years of temporary housing where they will be taken care of. Uh, and they're now looking for um, interesting alternatives in places um, in the uh, not too far away from where their homes are, where they can be attached to other kibbutzim or moshavim or other places where they can uh, uh, reestablish and regroup. But in the in you know in that phase, there is a few important things that has to happen in the intermediate phase. One of the things that has to happen, and that happened in New Orleans as well, is you have to rebuild community. In many cases, the community fabric, those relationships have been shattered because some cases people have been killed, they're lost, other people are traumatized. So the traditional leadership, the community uh, structure and fabric has been severely damaged. It needs to be rebuilt. Um, and that's the first thing that needs to take place. Um, the, the, the second thing that needs to take place is we have to provide schooling. Interestingly enough, one of my sons is an educator. He's a former uh, head of school. Um, he spent the last three weeks at the Dead Sea in a hotel with one of the kibbutzim, and he established there a temporary school. He raised money to place to 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 buy very large tents to act as temporary classrooms, and he created uh, an artificial school in the Dead Sea next to a hotel for evacuees, and that's being extremely important. The other thing that's happening there is obviously work. Um, for the most people in the South, their work was connected to the land. Uh, they were farmers, they were agriculturists, they had cows, they had fields, they had crops, they had uh, fruit on the trees. Some of them also worked in industry there. But you know, now being, in many cases, hundreds of miles away where they're being relocated to, they no longer have income and they have to rely on handouts from the government and from charity. And that's a difficult situation. So we have to find ways of providing temporary sources of income um, um, for them. Um, the third phase is what I call the long-term rebuilding and the long-term recovery. And that is probably the most critical phase because once we rebuild community, we can now start rebuilding physically uh, the, uh, the settlements down south. The temptation at first is to build exactly 
as is, as was. In practice, that's not a good idea. Um, I, I like to give the analogy of this whole thing of one of the things that happened in New Orleans at the time of Katrina. There, were, there was a synagogue that was the most badly destroyed Beth Israel. Um, and I worked with them when they were discussing as to how they're going to rebuild. And one of the first thing that became obvious was, well, we need to rebuild the community because the rabbi had left. The president of the shul actually died and had a heart attack. Um, and they were scattered. So there was a need actually to rebuild the shul as a community, as a kahila, before they could think about a building. And when they thought about a building, they realized that the building they used to have was in an area where there were few Jews. It was a declining area. And the facility they had was much too big for what the community needs were at the moment, and it wasn't relevant. So to build exactly what was and where it was no longer became an option. Uh, so what they did was they actually hired a new rabbi, a very charismatic rabbi, and they decided to move to one of the growing neighborhoods and build a facility that was smaller and flexible and would match their needs. And this is the sort of thinking that I, the kibbutzim, and I'm in touch with some of them, um, are going to have to think about the future, a future that is different, that would be better, that will possibly also have to meet with some of their um, critical um, needs as they are now, but not as they were, you know, 10 or 20 or 50, 50 years ago. One of the important things when you're going through this sort of relocation process is to dream. The more you dream, the more creative you are, uh, the, 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 the better chance that you can think of ideas that could be different and sustainable and lead to the sort of transformation um, that is necessary. But you have to be prepared for the long haul. Um, in, in the case of uh, down south, there are certain preconditions of what's going to happen. One of those, and I don't know if you've heard this from members of the kibbutzim and from the people who lived there, the first thing is that they need safety and security. They will no longer, they won't go back until they can be sure that Hamas is not there and they're no longer vulnerable to, to rocket attacks. It cannot be as the way it was six months ago, never mind you know a month ago. So the first precondition is one of safety um, and security. Uh, the second is what I said, not what was, because what was wasn't perfect, but something different. And we have to think about dreaming. We have to be creative. We have to work hard to make something good. And the last thing, which it may be something small, but for me, that's kind of also important as well, is good news is helpful. Thinking positively and hearing some good news is helpful for people able to transition from the state of trauma and loss and damage and hurt that they have to one of rebuilding and thinking about a positive future. Um, uh, I have to say, and, and I had a, earlier, Alex and I were speaking um, uh, about this. I think that there may well be a silver lining at the end of the road, although it's difficult to see that. But I think we will see an Israel that's a better Israel and a different Israel that will emerge. And one of the things that I think uh, I hope that will happen, I pass this on to some of the people that are planning for the future, that whole area of, of uh, southwest Israel, close to the Gaza border, will be the new Zionist frontier. This is where we're going to build some amazing new things. It'll be a new settlement project, a new Zionist uh, uh, venture 
which I hope that the people of Israel, both those living there and people like, and some of you who are living um, overseas will be a part of, because I think that we have, we can think about also a rosy future in, in, uh, ahead of us. So those are a few of my thoughts about Jews on the move in America today, but also Jews on the move in Israel at the current crisis today. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about the some things I've talked about or some questions and what, or what you feel about this. Thank you so much. Um, yes, we'd love to open it up to questions or comments. Please, anyone feel free to raise your hands um, and you can unmute or you can always write things in the chat. Yes, while we wait for folks, I have a, a question for you. I'm curious if you've seen any patterns of uh, people either moving outside of Israel while this conflict is going on or the reverse, um, more people wanting to make Aliyah, um, especially with all the anti-Semitism that we're seeing outside of Israel in North America and in Europe, um, if you've noticed any kind of trends there or can make any predictions. No, no, that's a, that's a very good question. And I think there's some interesting things going on. Look, the happy people that have left the country, um, they've left them for personal reasons, some out of fear, worry, want to be close to family members abroad. They're feeling the trauma. That has happened. Um, it's not large numbers, but that has happened. But I think for the most part, it's a temporary thing. Regarding moving to Israel, um, yes, already that is happening. Um, I know that I've seen reports from the Aliyah department to the Jewish agency of a lot of, and from Nefesh Benefesh, there's been increased interest in people moving Israel, making Aliyah. I think that's going to accelerate in the months and maybe the you know couple of years to come. I think we'll do see more people moving to Israel. I think some of the positive changes that are going to come out of Israel in the long term um, are going to be encouraging and will attract people uh, to move. Um, there's also something interesting as well, although I don't really think it will be happening. Um, I don't know how much some of us all remember, uh, but first of all, going back a long way, Gaza was a Jewish area. There's been Jewish settlement in Gaza for thousands of years. Um, and uh, there's an ancient synagogue, remnants of an ancient synagogue that's still actually there today. And there's been pictures of IDF soldiers actually standing in that ancient synagogue. I, I was there about 30 years ago as well. Um, and there were settlements in, in more recent times since the Six-Day War. There were settlements that were built in Gaza or around Gaza in an area called Gush Katif, the Katif block, uh, that were there until they were uh, removed by the Israeli government in uh, the late 1990s. Uh, so there was settlement there. Now there have been some talk of the right-wing settler movement who's saying we actually, after we've annihilated, we've got rid of Hamas, we ought to rebuild Jewish settlements in in, in the Gaza Strip. Um, I think that's unlikely. I don't think that's a good idea, and I think that's unlikely to happen. But I think your question is a very valid one. I think, you know, that there is, there is a question of people moving, and I think certainly, and, and I would like to encourage this when I talked about, you know, this new Zionist enterprise, I think there will be people who, once we've made the area north of Gaza a safe place, I think there will, will be people who definitely will want to uh, move there, and I do hope that happens. I have a question. Sure. Hi, Razel. Back to you. 
Sorry, there's <laughs> another question. <laughs> Given all the insights that you've shared with us, um, what agencies or what kind of coordination among organizations is there to try to spread these ideas of how to um, help people on the move affiliate and, and do so many of the things you've done? I understand it may not be organized at all, and it may just be up to local um communities to sort of adopt these ideas but can you tell me anything about that yeah sure so the the the, the, the most effective way of doing this is through a newcomers program um, there are many communities that have newcomers program they call them sometimes shalom cincinnati or shalom austin uh, there are quite a few programs such as those up and down the country uh, typically they are run mostly through federations, sometimes through the JCC, uh, but could be other organizations that do it as well. And they will work together if it's run out of federation, and that's probably the most effective way to do it, since federation is a sort of an all-encompassing body, even though I'm biased <laughs> as a former federation CEO. Um, but uh, typically, the, the federation would involve the JCC and synagogues and other local agencies, institutions, you know, in that process, and they work together in a coordinated manner. Um, the, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, detail about how to do this, and I've helped a number of communities up and down the country develop their newcomer programs. It can be really effective. It can be not only successful in engaging and welcoming um, uh, Jewish families to be involved in the local community, but it also can be a way of you know, reinvigorating that local Jewish community um, in, in an amazing yeah. way. So um, it's extremely important that those things um, happen. It mostly works at the local level because that's where, you know, people engage locally. You know, that you go to a local doctor and to a local synagogue and you work, you work out at a local fitness center um, rather than do that on a regional or national basis. So, yes, there's certainly things that can and hopefully should be done. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Michael, for your presentation. That was really interesting. And it was a pleasure to host you. I also want to thank uh, our co-sponsors for today, Congregation Orzion in Phoenix. And just to let you all know about our next program, which will, uh, we have um, Rabbi Andy Khan coming to speak to us on uh, November 16th for the Sacred Earth Jewish Perspectives on Our Planet, uh, also at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. So we hope you can all tune into that as well. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.